millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got a fellow podcast on the pod this time, Dominic Sandbrook, host of the brilliant The Rest of History podcast. He was, like me, a TV presenter at the BBC. But unlike me, he's also written a slew of brilliant, best-selling highly acclaimed history books as well. He's now a podcaster as well as an author, but he's also decided to take a new tack. He's writing some history books for kids. And we both agreed, as we have kids the same age, that there is a kind of weird gap in the market, which is a rare thing in our capitalist world of competing interests. There's a sort of gap in the market for history for a certain age group. We're in danger of losing kids at that particular age. So after the horrible history's excitement of being young and heads being chopped off, and before they can start getting to kind of adult popular history, there's a certain gap, and he's trying to fill it. Good luck to him. In this podcast, we talk about history, we talk about broadcasting it, studying it, writing it, what makes good history stories to tell and engage young people. Interesting stuff. If you wish to log on to watch the world's best history channel, you can now do so anywhere in the world. All you have to do is go to historyit.tv. You head over there, and for a small subscription, less than the cost of a cocktail every month, you get access to History Hit TV. We've got documentaries going very well at the moment this week on the final 100 days of the First World War, the series of largely forgotten victories won by the American, British and French allies and others on the Western Front fighting the Germans in 1918. We all remember the great sort of futile stalemates of the First World War. Very few of us talk about the succession of enormous and significant victories that ended that war. 103 years ago this month. So please head over and do that. Those documentaries are great and they're doing really well. So uh, thanks for everyone watching those and thanks for all the feedback that you've sent me about those documentaries as well. In the meantime, folks, here is the very brilliant Dominic Sandbrook. Enjoy. Dominic, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to come on your pod. I have to say, I am a huge admirer of you and your podcast. I'm an admirer of your resilience, I think is the thing. Because I know it's kind of hard when you're overtaken by a younger and sprightlier podcast. He's coming out swinging. Oh, my goodness. You've shown really impressive stamina and self-belief to keep going in the face of such fierce competition. So well done to you. You know what this reminds me of? It's like when the All Blacks do their hacker and then teams have to work out what to do. <laughs> yeah, sometimes yeah. they kind of go and have a chat somewhere else and yeah. sometimes they look a bit... What's he going to do? Is he going to yeah. sing his national anthem? Yeah, and then is he, he you, you're just one of those, like, you're like Keith Wood or whatever he was in Ireland, like South Africa 96 or whatever, and he's walked right, right up to Joe right Lawrence, up to like, screaming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just Brilliant. don't do what the Lions did in 2005 when they, f- they threw a sort of feather or something. They got 
Alistair Campbell was the uh, oh, God. the press advisor to that tour. Woodward was the coach. It was an absolute shambles. Anyway, oh, we're getting God. sidetracked. We are getting slightly sidetracked, to be honest. But um, how's your lad, who's your editor on this project, your yeah, consultant? So chief battle consultant. He is nine. He's called Arthur. So the story of it, there is a story. Every great series has an origin myth, right? I mean, Arthur himself is an origin myth, right? You're right, obviously exactly. fond of those. Exactly. So he was doing evacuees at school in year three. And um, they were dressed up as evacuees and they sang patriotic songs, which obviously as a columnist for the Daily Mail, I greatly admired. And a half term, we took him to the Imperial War Museum and sort of halfway around, I said to him, basically to stop him climbing on tanks and stuff, I'll buy your book in the gift shop. And we got to the gift shop and I couldn't quite find the right thing. And that was sort of way that we historians do. I sort of thought to myself, you know what, it's weird. There's this whole, you know, there's horrible histories, but that's not really stories. And I think it's so important that kids learn the great stories, the great characters, have a sense of narrative. And I just thought, why not have a go myself? And actually, that's been just such an interesting and provocative kind of challenge to tell a story in a sort of sensible and responsible way, but in an exciting way for younger readers. Well, I'm glad you have done that because my daughter is 10. And we've graduated from like baby history and I don't know what is the bridging. Well, now I know what it is, which is Dominic Sambrook. But I don't think there was really a kind of, obviously the schooly stuff, but for reading for pleasure, there didn't seem to be a kind of gateway drug into adult history. Yeah, I think that's right. And so now there is, and I enjoy your books very much. They are now on the Snow Family um, reading list. And also because it is a tough age, because they're very sophisticated, right? Yeah. These older children, young adults, however you want to call them, pre-teens. And yet they're not sophisticated enough to go into like maybe some of the mass rape around the fall of Berlin in 1945. You know, like it's so. Yeah, you wouldn't go in on that, would you? And yet they are very much sophisticated enough to start discussing ideas around. I don't know, it's hard, man. I mean, how do you tell the story of these two gigantic conflicts for that age group? Here's the thing I think you tell the story, you don't have to massively overcomplicate things by worrying too much. The core of history, I mean, the reason that you and I and probably lots of the listeners of this podcast get interested in history was because of story and character. You know, those are the things, human beings, often quite ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. That's what gets our juices flowing. It's true of you when you wrote about the Seven Years' War. Maybe not so much true of me in writing about the Harold Wilson government. I mean, those aren't really extraordinary circumstances. But you know what I mean? It's sort of human beings. And I think that's the key to it. It's telling the stories through individuals. So the First World War, I started the First World War by talking about Gavrilo Princip. He's a boy. He's sent away by his mother from their little village, Obliai, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. He's sent to Sarajevo. He reads kind of stories of Daring Do. He's a great lover of Sherlock Holmes. School doesn't work out. Bad reports. Drops out. Falls behind. Becomes seduced by kind of Serbian nationalism. Ends up floating with the kind of Black Hand organization. And of course, we all know it's the story of radicalization, basically. And actually, you can tell that story to children. They completely will get it. They'll understand how he, a boy feels miserable, he's been sent away, he joins a crusade, and then he murders Franz Ferdinand. An amazing set piece. You know, one of the great set pieces in all history. One of the great turning points. So right then, you've got your kickoff point. And then it's sort of obviously working in characters like the Kaiser and so on and so forth. I mean, I started the First World War book with the story of Tolkien. So I've got a bloke on the Somme. Young man, his friends are dying around him. He loses almost all his closest friends from school, all but one. Lots of the members of the rugby team he played in have been killed. And he's sitting there and he's daydreaming, which we know that Tolkien did. He's daydreaming about 
goblins, battles, this sort of late Victorian Edwardian kind of imaginative world that he has. And that's what provides the sort of genesis of his Middle Earth stories. And I thought that's the way in, because lots of them will know about The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. They'll know about goblins and wizards with swords and all this sort of stuff. So there's your story. You say, that's the way in. This is the story behind it. Let's explore what happened. And I think telling it through individuals like that, actually, that can give children a really good hook. And actually, you know what? Academic historians will always say, well, that's not really what history is about. But we know deep down, an element of common sense will tell you, that is really what history is about. The closer you get to the mosaic, the more that you see that it's made up of all these individual little dots. No, I, I love the way you talk about Geoffrey Wellham in your Second World War book. I think you brought up some amazing characters. As you're talking, I'm thinking to myself suddenly, like, is one of the reasons that we retreated from this space is because it became a bit more tricky to write about because history has become more ambiguous. Like when I was a kid, I was raised anachronistically because I'm not actually five million years old. But even in the 80s, my house was full of kind of Edwardian adventure books. Yeah, mine too. G.A. Henty. Yeah. Right, exactly. So that's why you and I are slightly bizarre people. But I had a kind of weird late imperial upbringing long after the British Empire ceased to exist. Yeah. I suspect certain members of our cabinet might have shared that given some of their behaviours. But it seems to me there was a huge flowering of that kind of literature for those particularly boys for that age in that period. Yeah. And maybe as it became more difficult to write about those things, did authors retreat from it? Because when I was reading about Wolf at Quebec or Clive in India or Wellington in the Peninsula, it was unproblematic, uncontroversial. So therefore, what's it like now writing for young people and talking about like, things like empire and whether it's slavery in Alexander Burke or whether it's lying with Stalin in your Second World War book. Like, How do you write about those things now? I think the more you stress about it, the more complicated it gets. And if you're actually just matter of fact about it. So sure, we allied with Stalin. He's a bad guy. But children are used to the idea of people allying with baddies. I mean, I sort of thought the children who read these books will be used to the Marvel films, to the world of Star Wars, to the Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter. And in all of those worlds, there is shades of grey and moral ambiguity. Sometimes people do deals with baddies. People change sides. Children can completely take all that. And they can also take on board that protagonists are flawed, I think. So let's say Churchill in the Second World War. You can say right at the outset, Churchill was sometimes very badly behaved. He was a staunch imperialist. He was regarded as unreliable, a loose cannon, all of those kinds of things that we say about him now. I mean, you can absolutely say all those things and still paint him. You know, I think it'd be mad to write, by the way, to history of the Second World War, which Churchill is not on the side of the light, as it were. So I think you can do all that, actually. You mentioned Alexander the Great. There's only one way to tell the story of Alexander the Great, and that's a great adventure story, which it is. And that's the way that for hundreds and thousands of years, people have told it. So I don't massively stress about it. It's definitely true that writing, let's say, the First World War, if I'd written that 20 or 30 years ago, I'd have written it more oblivious to the global dimension, I think. So right now, I'm much more conscious writing it about, let's say, Sikh soldiers. You know, you have the story that a lot of children do at school already, Walter Tull, the black soldier who had played football before the war and then dies in 1918 heroically and are leading his men. So there are lots of kinds of stories like that or stories about women serving in the war. I mean, I've got some great stories. There's a girl called Marina Yerlova. You may know the story, the Cossack girl she was called. So she basically, war is declared, Russia is fighting Germany and Austria-Hungary. Her father is, I think, a major or something like that in some sort of Cossack town. There's just a general sense of confusion and milling around. And she goes down to the station with a load of the peasants. 
she basically just gets on a troop train. And I don't think she ever sees her family ever again. She's 14 or 15. And she goes off. They go off to the Caucasus. She falls asleep. She wakes up. They're there. And I think at that point, she thinks to herself, that might have been a bad move to get on that train. But she's made a bed now. She's going to lie on it. So she ends up being taken up by a regiment as a kind of mascot. She has a uniform. She sees action. And then she has this incredible journey. She ends up fighting the Russian Civil War and ends up, I think, as a dancer in America. Stories like that, which you might not have told 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, because you'd be the experience of women might not be very much on your mind. Kids love all that kind of thing. And sure, there's always an element of ambiguity about it. I think there's a tendency among a lot of historians now to be incredibly introspective and self-flagellating, to kind of be policing themselves for anything vaguely cancelable. And I think if you just crack on and tell the story in a sensible, but admittedly, for a 21st century diverse audience, but I don't think you need to be massively kind of hand-wringing about it. Full steam ahead and uh, damn the tweets. <laughs> <laughs> listen to Dan Snow's history. I'm talking to Dominic Sandbrook. More coming up. What are Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Was it fun? Because you've always written these fantastically scholarly books and engaging books about the more recent history. Did you feel rather excitable and promiscuous just delving into kind of ancient history and yeah, World War absolutely. II, writing about D-Day? I mean, when you're writing about D-Day, yeah. it feels like you're doing a particular sort of piece of history on it. It's wonderful. You are. Or oh, D-Day or Dunkirk. So like Dunkirk, for example, I wrote that chapter and I told the story of the bloke. You, everybody listening to this podcast will know the story about the guy Lightoller mm. who um, takes his yacht over his pleasure boat and it's clearly the inspiration for the Christopher Nolan film Dunkirk and he loads all these men on and he's dodging stukas and all this stuff on the way there and the way back. An incredible story, perhaps to some of us adults, slightly cliched, because we know how it ends. We've seen the film. Lots of people will kind of roll their eyes at the little ships and all this sort of thing. But as my editor, Simon Winder at Penguin, who edits lots of Legend. big history books, and he said to me, the funny thing about this, he said, I don't think I've edited many books before where the readers don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they don't know they get away at Dunkirk. They don't know that D-Day works. And for some of them, it'll be literally be the first time they encounter this story. So you can actually really revel in the drama and uncertainty of it. Those things that you and I would absolutely recognize, you're talking about G.A. Henty. When we read history for the first time, Dan, when we were 8, 9, 10, 11, did we know that Wolf was going to win at Quebec and then die? Did we know that Nelson was going to be shot at the end of the Battle of Trafalgar? You know, that sense of narrative drama that is so key to our love of stories, generally as human beings, that we kind of lose with history the older we get because we feel like we know it all and we've seen it all before. Rediscovering that was such a joy. Yeah, and also you do this wonderful podcast in which you narrate great chunks of history. And it, the hardest thing, I think, is not forgetting what people don't know. Like, you know, you mentioned Lytle there and you and I are like, oh, of course, we didn't mention he was a second lieutenant on the Titanic. He was, right, exactly. What an amazing life. Amazing life. And it's a really annoying thing when I meet listeners and they go, I really like that podcast, but by the way, why did X happen? You're like, I can't believe I didn't even say that. That's all. Yeah. So it's, as you say, like getting to a place where you're not assuming any knowledge must be very exciting indeed. And also exciting to be writing about Spitfires and Alexander the Great's heavy companion cavalry. Of course. Those are kind of deep down the things that got us into history. So it's quite nice to be able to allow to kind of write about them, I guess, given that permission. Completely. I was an academic historian and... Um... If somebody ever mentioned a love of these things, that was very in for a dig. You know, that yeah, was kind yeah. of very déclassé. You're kind of letting down the academic side. But deep down, that's why we were all in the room, because we'd all fallen in love with those stories when we were 12 and actually reveling in that and being unashamed about it. So, you know, D-Day or... or um, I mean, they don't have to be those canonical stories. So there's a story in the Second World War book, which I'd come across because I'd reviewed it for the Sunday Times, about how the Danes helped the Jews escape from Denmark. Very well-known story, particularly in Scandinavia. So Denmark's got quite a small Jewish population. The Germans have invaded. They conquered Denmark before breakfast, famously, because the Danes think there's basically no point spilling lots of blood unnecessarily. And the Danes, they know that the decent German official has basically tipped them the wink. The Jewish population is all going to be round up. The Danes hide them in their cellars and their basements and their summer houses. And then at basically this sort of secret signal, they take them all out and they take them to the coast, to the sort of northwest coast of Denmark. And they take them just across that narrow strait to neutral Sweden in fishing boats. and all. So it's kind of like a Dunkirk style scenario to some extent. But that story, that's not that well known in the English speaking world. And it's such a, a lovely kind of inspirational story. So telling those kinds of things, it doesn't always have to be kind of massive blood and thunder and people with machine guns. So my son read each chapter as I wrote it, and he is very much a boy of the um, G.A. Henty, Dan Snow school. So he would give massive ticks in the margin when there was mention of guns. And 
sometimes he'd cross out the word soldiers and write in stormtroopers next to it, just kind of randomly. And then when I did the six wives of him and the eighth, he loved all hanging, drawing and quartering. So those kinds of details. And I think having done school talks, I can safely say that he's not alone because whenever you basically mention any sort of disemboweling, the kind of eight or nine-year-old eyes light up with joy. Yeah, when I'm doing school, my go-to is Henry VIII's body bursting in the coffin, allegedly. And yeah. if I'm losing the crowd, which I usually am, <laughs> when you're talking to a primary school, you throw that one down and, my God, you got them. You got them for another minute or two. Do you want a tip? Do you want another yeah. arrow in your quiver? Yes, so it's I Henry do. VIII's enemas. You know about his enemas? No. So they'd get this silver tube and they would shove it up his bottom and it was attached to a pig's bladder full of honey and milk and they'd just squirt to, to clean him out because he was so badly constipated. Now we're talking. Now, my editor, Simon Winder at Penguin, said to me, I think that detail is too strong for children. And I was like, Simon, your children are too grown up. You've forgotten what it's like. Yeah. They love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Simon writes the most beautiful books in his own right. He's been on this podcast as well. And he is not one to talk because he includes all sorts of extraordinary details. Exactly. I'm very glad he does. There's an awful lot about sausages in his German books, as I recall. There's all sorts about like Gregorian chants. And then he goes... I'm now boring myself with this, so I will move on to the next chapter. Anyway, um, so you mentioned Henry VIII there. You're doing the whole goddamn thing. You're doing human history. What's the plan? So I've done four. I've done Second World War, Henry VIII, First World War, and Alexander. I've just this week finished Cleopatra, which was a fantastic, I mean, amazing characters in Cleopatra. I mean, you've got Cleopatra, you've got Pompey, you've got Mark Antony, Octavian, you know, Julius Caesar. Heard of course. Them. Heard of them, yeah. So I've just done Cleopatra. I'm going to be doing the Vikings. I'm going to do a Napoleon. And I'm going to do the Conquest of the Americas. Though there's still some dispute about the title. I thought you were going to say there's some dispute about the historiography of the Conquest of the Americas. I was like, yes, there is, Dominic. Yes, there is, buddy. Yeah. There definitely is. So on the one hand, the Aztecs with their lovely beads. And on the other hand, the Spanish landing and killing everybody. I mean, what's not to like for a children's book? And then, so that's the first eight. And then if anybody has bought any of them, there might be some more. So we shall see. When you're writing grown-up history, to be honest, I spend the few books I've done, obviously compared to you, but I spend a lot of time worrying about the four people in the world who know more than I do about this subject. Yeah. And I worry yeah. about my footnotes and my endnotes and my showing off. And presumably that's quite different, really, because you've given, you just go, actually, screw that. It's quite pure. You're just going, are the kids going to keep reading this goddamn exactly. book? Exactly. So there's no footnotes, obviously. At the end, I, there's still that tiny little bit of the academic in me that thinks, I need to say, I read this book, this book, this book, this book, this book just to sort of acknowledge my sources. But you're right, there's nothing like that. And I think what there is, it's very like doing journalism. You just have to make up your mind what people are doing and what the story is. Now, that's obviously completely different from a very nuanced book for adults, where you're like, well, there are different versions of how Alexander died, blah, 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 blah. I mean, kids don't want it. They just want, like, tell me the bloody story. You know, was he, was he poisoned or did he die of malaria or something? Make up your mind. And it's actually quite a good discipline. You just have to make up your mind. Who are the goodies? Who are the baddies in the Second World War? Or are there any goodies and baddies? Was Anne Boleyn, was she a sort of conniving character or is she greatly misunderstood? And in Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling knows what her characters are like. And I think as a historian writing for children, you also have to know what your characters are like. Of course, you can suggest shades of grey. You can say, some men said that Alexander was this. I think you can do that a little bit, but you can't just immerse the child reader in this great fog of dithering uncertainty. You just have to make up your mind, and that is incredibly liberating. Do you write the beginning of each book? What follows may not be true. Never. Really? Okay. The Penguin tagline is, the stories that are too good for fiction 
or something. And and what's more, they're all true. Oh, right, okay. And the author's notes, I will sometimes say, there's a bit of uncertainty about this. Da, 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 da. I may have invented some details here. Because I think you have to be reasonably honest with the reader. You can't lie to them. It's a very different challenge, isn't it? But is it, though, Dan? I mean, when you wrote your Seven Years' War book... It was childlike. You know, it was true. <laughs> no, but when you wrote it, you must have had a sense of drama. <laughs> no, God, Quebec, yeah, totally, totally. You know, totally. ships on the seas. Yeah, yeah. And the techniques that you use are just slightly diluted versions of the ones that you would use. Okay, you might dial up the melodrama in a children's book, but in a book about the Seven Years' War, let's say, or indeed a book about Alexander, or you'd want to have drama, wouldn't you? I mean, oh, it'd be mad not to. Can't miss it. Get run over by the goddamn drama. Yeah. I'm not trying to sell your book for you. Well, I've, I'm glad someone is. Can I ask, is the most annoying thing that you ever get asked by people, how do you get kids interested in history? I go, have you ever met kids? They bloody love history. I like It's yeah. the weirdest thing people say to me. I was like, what are you talking about? Kids are bonkers about history. How do you stop kids being yeah. interested in history? It's a far more interesting question. I think the default is to be interested in history. Yeah, they love it. And some kids are turned off it because they think it's just homework. I think if you have the accent on the story, I think the great thing about history for kids, and I think the great error, actually, is to make it narcissistic. So history is all about you. It's all about you sitting here in the 21st century. I think one of the great joys of history is it's escapism. It takes you outside your world, but it also reminds you that you're just a pretty small person in the grand scheme of things, and that there have been lots of other people before you who've trod the earth, who had wildly different belief systems, expectations, hopes, and anxieties. And yet the fascination is that in some ways they're not so different. And children love that idea that there are these people, Catherine of Aragon grew up as a little girl in the Alhambra. She had toys, a kind of pull-along dog or something. She liked sweets, all this kind of stuff. So she's not so different, and yet she's completely different. And I think they're fascinated by the tension between those two things. Yeah, it's a good point that narcissism People often ask how people should teach history. And I don't know because I'm not actually a teacher. I've never taught history in my life. But yeah. my gut is to say, go with passion. And what I like about what you're doing is you're going, you know what, Alexander the Great. And it's not because that was going to teach young people how liberal democracy grew up in the <laughs> West or how we came to have, you know, industrial capitalism. But it's because that's something you're passionate about. It's a great story. And I think teachers probably should be let off the hook I don't think it matters enormously what they're teaching in history, as long as they're teaching history, right? Am I, is that a crazy thing? No, I agree with you completely, Dan. And actually, where well, I also agree with you is I think most, well, basically all history teachers that I've ever met seem to be incredibly passionate and to do a brilliant job. I don't think I've ever met a history teacher, primary or secondary, who was kind of jaded, disaffected, didn't like the subject and unenthusiastic. By and large, they always are full of ideas, full of enthusiasm, and I agree with you. I think, what child have you ever met that enjoyed being preached to? I mean, none. I think, of course, there are things you can try to teach through history, but it shouldn't be primarily a vehicle for kind of preachiness. I mean, enjoy ancient Egypt. Enjoy the glamour and exoticism of it. You don't have to constantly be debunking. There's lots of time for debunking later. That's one of what I thought about Dunkirk or something. I thought, do you know what? They can have 10 years enjoying the story of the little ships and they can have 10 years enjoying D-Day and Alexander fighting elephants and Henry VIII having his enemies and so on and so forth. And then they can have the next 50 years of people picking holes and saying, well, it's all much more complicated than that and all the rest of it. No child wants to hear that first. They want to have the fun first and then the debunking afterwards. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Well, Dominic, well done. It's a great project and they're going to be well-thumbed in the Snow household. So thank you very much for coming on. What are they all called? What's the franchise called? Are they The franchise. I like the word franchise. The franchise is called Adventures in Time. Boom. And your other franchise, the podcast franchise, is called The Rest is History. Yeah, you're very good in publicising a rival podcast. I, I admire that. Leaving the rest of us in the dust. <laughs> ah, that's it. not true. It um, is true, but I'm just saying it's not true. Just yeah, for exactly. the sake it's of very it. generous of you. Uh, okay, man. Well, thanks for coming on this one. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank Pleasure. you. Pleasure. Cheers, Dan. I feel the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs. This part of the history of our country, all work on and finish. Thank you for making it here to this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favour, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.